Okay. <laughs> we'll start this evening with a well-known metta story from the time of the Buddha. It goes like this. Once, the Buddha was returning from his alms round together with his retinue of monastics. As they were nearing the prison in town, in consideration of a handsome bribe from his cousin, Devadatta. Now, Devadatta was the Buddha's uh, difficult family member. You know, there's difficult person day on Metta Retreat, and then there's a whole other category, in parentheses, difficult family members. <laughs> so Devadatta was his difficult family member. Uh, so Devadatta gave a handsome bribe to the executioner at the prison, and the executioner let loose the fierce elephant, uh, Nalagiri. It's fierce elephant, which was, uh, Nalagiri was used for the execution of criminals. As the intoxicated elephant rushed towards the Buddha, trumpeting fearfully, the Buddha projected powerful thoughts of metta towards it. Meanwhile, Venerable Ananda, who often plays the role in the stories of the Buddha's cousin of uh, really an ally, he plays the ally role over and over again in the Buddha's life. So Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, was so deeply concerned about the Buddha's safety that he ran in front of the Buddha to shield him. But the Buddha said, friend, it's okay, stand aside. The the projection of love itself is quite sufficient. Okay, So Ananda stepped aside, and the impact of the Buddha's meta-radiation was so immediate and overwhelming that by the time the elephant neared the Buddha, it was completely tamed of its intoxication, its rage, its distress, its ill will, um, as though one who was drunk had suddenly become sober by the magical power of a spell, so it's said. The tusker, it is said, bowed down in reverence, the way trained elephants do in a circus. The end. <laughs> so um, these, these stories are always metaphorical and, and archetypal, and do feel free to uh, take it in fully into your heart, to take it with a grain of salt, according to what seems appropriate to you. So you might be thinking that perhaps this talk is on metta for the difficult person, but in fact, that was last year's talk that I gave. Um, and this year, what as I was reflecting on what I might want to um, share at this point in the retreat, what really deeply inspired me was um, sharing some reflections about metta for all beings. Yeah. And one of the reasons that I want to talk tonight about metta for all beings is because I was reflecting back on the five years that I've been involved in this retreat. And I realized of all the wonderful Dharma talks I've heard from, you know, my team over this last five years, I've never heard a talk specifically on the theme of metta for all beings. Then I was having dinner with Donald and he was mentioning that he's not sure he's ever heard a Dharma talk here at Spirit Rock this is a bit of a paradox, but exclusively on the topic of metta for all beings. So I thought, maybe it's time. 
No. So the category of all beings to some is delightful and creative, this muse, you know, this invitation to the vastness. Uh, and for others, it's overwhelming and heady. And of course, it can vary over the course of our practice years. So tonight we'll attend to both of those aspects as well as exploring how um, all of these metamuses that we've been playing with kind of build up to the muse of all beings. Uh, We'll talk about the process of wishing well to all beings, some helpful tools, uh, some traditional techniques, and some examples of what metta for all beings looks like in the world. When the Buddha described a fully developed metta practice, he said this, Just as the rays of the sun touch all without distinction, so too the rays of fully developed loving kindness touch all beings without exception. So it's not as if the sun shines down and it shines on everybody except me, unless I'm maybe under the shade of that great tree of compassion that we talked about a few nights ago. Um, you know, it's, inc- it's inclusive. It's inclusive. True metta is devoid of self-interest. It evokes within a warm-hearted feeling of friendship, of fellowship, of sympathy and love. It grows boundless from practice and overcomes all social, religious, racial, political, and economic barriers. Metta is indeed a universal, unselfing, and all-embracing love as the fully developed version. And this quote is from the introduction of a commentary that I'm going to be using to inform the reflection and the teaching this evening. It's called Metta, and the subtitle is The Philosophy and Practice of Universal Love. And it's by a monastic, Venerable um, Buddharakita. And he was the former president of Mahabodhi Society in India. Actually, there are many Mahabodhi societies all across India. Uh, But he was the president of the whole organization for many years. It's a monastically based organization that is grounded equally in both practice and service. And it comes out of the lineage of the Burmese tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw. So when I was living and practicing in India near one of the Mahabodhi uh, monasteries in 2010, I picked up this great little commentary. And I was traveling in India for six months. So something this small with a cute cover, you know, was really user-friendly to wander around India with and just open it up and, oh, what is it going to call out today? What might be helpful? What might be useful? So I got very, um, very passionate about this topic for all beings, in part because of this commentary, in part because of another story that I may or may not share um, about that time in India. So first we'll talk about the build-up. We'll hit rewind a bit. Way back at the beginning of the retreat, about you know, 10 years ago, I'm sure it feels to some of us, we began with wishing well to ourselves. 
Because supposedly in the tradition, uh, we start where it's easy. We fully acknowledge that in Western culture, sometimes starting with ourselves, is the absolute hardest thing we could ever do. But through that, uh, the hope would be that each of us in moments had glimmers of that direct experience of our basic goodness. You know, whatever that means or feels like to you, basic integrity, basic friendliness, basic goodness. And out of that grows the possibility of a healthy sense of non-separation. I'm going to be talking about that more, a healthy sense of non-separation. So I actually want to finish a quote from the suttas that Larry offered right at the beginning of the retreat, and it's a very well-known quote from the Buddha about wishing well to self. The part that we know really well goes like this. I visited all quarters with my mind, the Buddha said, and nor did I find anybody dearer than myself. So sometimes we describe it, if we look the whole world over, no one dearer than ourselves. Here's the rest of that quote from the suttas. Self is likewise to every single other is dear. One who genuinely loves themselves could never intentionally harm another. And the rest of that quote that we don't quote so often is incredibly important to me because it's the why. That first part of the quote, if we look the whole world over, no one more worthy of our love and kindness than ourselves, is not a new age interpretation of the sutta. It's just the first piece. Likewise, I found every other is dear, you know, and self is likewise to every other is dear. When we genuinely love ourselves, we could never intentionally harm another. I sometimes use that as an open practice question, realizing that we don't genuinely love ourselves 100% of the time and how that actually works in a heart meeting the world. Modern day version of that, perhaps, from the writer Catherine Mansfield. I want, by understanding myself, to understand others. I want, by understanding myself, to understand others. So then we move on to the dear ones, our benefactor, our good friend, and we're developing a friendly connection with those who support us, those who have our backs. Uh, And we start to realize, again, on a direct experience level, that we don't always need to be asserting and defending ourselves. Not always. Maybe once in a while. Anyway. Then we make that really important transition into the muse of the neutral person or the familiar stranger. And as we look around and really take in and connect with familiar strangers in our day here, in our lives, uh, then we can expand that into the almost 7 billion familiar strangers that we don't see every day. And one of the ways I do this is, you know, let's say I'm in a store and there's the classic scenario of a parent with a kid who is totally burned out on being in that store and they're whining and they're grabbing things. And, you know, you just see that the parents at their wits ends. And 
you know, the friendliness extends to them, but then it could expand. It's not just, oh, may that parent with their child, you know, be peaceful and be able to take a breath right now, but may all parents with their children in this moment be peaceful and be able to take a breath right now. Or some of us have the practice of kind of an all beings practice of wishing well in traffic. First, we have to remember that we are part of the traffic so that there's less separation. And then we're wishing well to those around us. And then we start to, we could expand to think about the mega cities, you know, in that moment, if we're not in a mega city, the, the mega cities where there are, you know, 10 million people living in a small space and may all beings in traffic right now, you know, find a way to respond peacefully and wisely. So it's just a natural expansion from the neutral person into all beings. Then, of course, I'm wondering uh, how your day has been with the difficult person muse. So we move into kind of the level of all beings accept. Sylvia often talks about that. She'll tell stories about, oh, I, I feel a basic friendliness for everybody, except there was that one guy all those years, you know. All beings accept. Fill in your own blank. And we've been working with the pain of that. How even if there's just one accept, it's like, oh, so much forgiveness for ourselves. You know, so much intention for um, release of that bondage of, of, the, of the struggle with the one that's the exception. So that we can be freer and easier with our friendliness. Of course, in the end, what you may have already noticed is that uh, actually everybody is every category. You know, we are ourselves. We have been, or we are our own good friend. Sometimes we have our own back, and we're a great ally for ourselves, a benefactor. There are parts of ourselves that are kind of more like a familiar stranger. And maybe this has happened for you on retreat. You step outside of a conditioned habit pattern, and then you go, who is that? You know, it's like the familiar stranger part. And we all know we can be our own you know, best difficult person. And everybody else is the same. You know? so it starts to merge. It starts to blend. When we talk about the process for practicing metta for all beings, a few different areas that come to mind. The first area is all beings. If we get into a a conceptual heady place with that, uh, a common question is, what am I supposed to be feeling exactly for all beings? I can't even imagine all beings. I mean... If we get really big and all beings and include all the kind of bacteria and viruses in, in my very body, I mean, it just becomes mind-boggling, you know. <laughs> it could be kind of overwhelming. In moments, what am I supposed to be feeling right now? So the importance of noticing and acknowledging expectations, uh, remembering metta as basic friendliness and not always gushing love, Sometimes we're okay with the ordinary aspect that Heather was speaking about of the metta until we get to all beings. And then we fall into the same old hole of, isn't it supposed to be gushing for all beings? No, it could be ordinary. 
And sometimes it's as simple as noticing the quality of absence in the practice. Maybe you're not feeling much, but there's a distinct absence of ill will. And this comes from this commentary, metta. Absence of desire to oppress or damage, to hurt or injure, to torment, to trouble or eliminate others is metta for all beings. It's that simple and it's that profound because if we really collectively had the absence of desire, much less acting out of, to oppress and damage and torment and trouble and eliminate, can you imagine the world we live in? Maybe we wouldn't have to have silent retreats. <laughs> we could just live like this uh, with everything included. I don't know. There's so many different visions of what that might look like. Then there's a piece about embodiment. You know, what am I supposed to be feeling? Embodiment. Sometimes when we've practiced loving kindness for all beings, whether it was a spontaneous moment of moving from may all beings in traffic be well right now, you know, just a moment that you had, or, you know, you're in an interaction with somebody and and you just feel so much love towards them and it just like bursts into bloom and it's not about anybody anymore. It just feels so sweet might not actually be about the formal practice. Sometimes I think all beings is just a manifestation of what we're doing here. We have a quote-unquote all beings wishing well day, but it's not as if we haven't had an expansive feeling like that, maybe here, maybe in our lives. But one aspect of that is that we can get lost in the bliss. We actually get so blissed out that we've lost our mindfulness. And, you know, what a problem to have, right? (laughs) Um, So we get lost in the bliss, you know, or we go through the cycles and we move into contraction. It's like, may all beings be well. All I have is a heart of stone. May all beings be well. Numb, nothing, you know. And then we move from, from all beings to be well to I can't do this. I can't stand myself. I wish everyone was like more inspiring so that I could really wish them well. And we go into that mind state. So when the, that, the feeling actually becomes gushing, you know, so we've really emphasized ordinariness, but let's talk a little bit about bliss, you know, and the gush, because it does come. We can't make it come. We can't make it stay Uh, the same way. We can't make the opposite come or stay, but it comes, uh, I always think of it as a practice of drinking it in. You know, I've said that to many of you in groups and in, in our discussions. When you're really in a beautiful state, I'll say, drink it in. And what I mean by that is like, drink it into your cells. Breathe it in. Ground it. Feel your feet on the ground and your whole body just filling with it when it fills. And don't let it be that small, as big as it wants to be. And then the mind goes, it can't be that big, wherever our boundary of self is. And it's like, the mind is boundless. It could be as big as, well, the word big doesn't even work anymore. You know, this boundless quality. But ground it. 
so that it's not, whoa, I'm so blissed out. I, you know, the classic line is, I forgot my zip code. But a more realistic version of it is, I forgot what room I'm staying in in the dorms, and I just, you know, walked into somebody else's. <laughs> it happens here from time to time. If you've ever done it, no judgment, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but one of the things I'm finding particularly amusing is as we have this retreat center longer, it's been almost 15 years now, and those of us that have been coming for that whole time, it's like, which room am I in this retreat? Which room am I inhabiting? You know? So we get so blissed out that we forget our zip code, metaphorically. You know, whether it's where we're living here or... um, And so to really ground it. And then the opposite is understanding that when it becomes overwhelmed and then we do a big, you know, clamping down of of the clamshell, a big contraction of heart, that that's just part of the cycle, you know. Um, It's really understanding that the heart breathes in and breathes out the same way the breath breathes in and breathes out. And that when we go into contraction around metta for any being versus all beings, really bringing in the spacious quality. It's like the boundlessness as a support. So it might be looking around the room and realizing there's enough space for the contraction. It might be taking a breath and realizing actually there's enough air in this hall to be with the contraction. An obvious thing. But if we really take a breath with it, it's like, oh, there's so much space. So much space. And when we understand changing conditions, it's really a type of equanimity wisdom, which is what we were bringing in this afternoon. We all go through cycles in our metta practice, on retreat, off retreat. So, you know, we're drowning in it, and then we're walled off, and then we're blissing out, and then we're basking in it, and around and around and around she goes. And the equanimity is understanding, oh, it's a cycle. It's not so personal. And on the other hand, it's totally universal. We're just passing the hat here. You know, if you're contracted and, and drowning in, in this moment, you know, somebody else is in the opposite and somebody else is in between. We're just moving around. There's a beautiful quote by Rilke that uh, I love that kind of describes this in a meta spirit. He says, let everything happen. The beauty and the terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Let everything happen, the beauty and the terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Which is a more eloquent way of saying, you know, I love you, keep going. So then we might explore a little bit Another issue of the process of practicing metta for all beings, since we are in the process of the cultivation as well as drinking it in. And that's the question of, what if I get stuck and I can't send it to a group or a person? So I'll tell you a little bit of the story of my first formal, really formal metta retreat. I had actually practiced metta informally on many um, retreats. And where I actually trained in metta practice um, 
was on the two-month retreat here at Spirit Rock. And it's why I said the first night, I've kind of always done 50% Brahma Vihara practice and 50% insight meditation. So most years, I would take a month and practice metta or one of the other awakened states of heart, and then a month with the Vipassana or insight meditation. The first few years that I did that, the metta was uh, less formal. I spent most of the time with myself, because I really needed that in order to connect with likewise every other is dear, as the Buddha said, in a healthy way. Um, And I had worked through most of the categories that we've gone through this retreat in some depth, but I'd never really gotten to all beings. It's part of why I'm giving this talk. You know, it's easy to go, oh, tomorrow the retreat's almost over. I'll kind of walk around and wish well, which is a lovely thing to do tomorrow, and we'll do it. But there's so much to this. So it's kind of an invitation if it, if it calls you into bringing it more fully into your life. But the first year that I did all the way through these metamuses was a very hard year of retreat for me. It actually turned out that quite unexpectedly seven days into a two-month retreat of which the first month I was going to practice loving loving kindness exclusively, um, I had a severe injury to my knee. Um, And it was severe enough that uh, for a little while I really could barely walk. It was an incredible meta practice and quite humbling for me at the time even just getting my meal uh, and moving through the dining hall was so difficult. And I actually had to ask for help. You know, so people had little uh, roles, and I thought of them as like my kind of meta allies, helping me kind of function on retreat. I was so grateful for that. Um, Really felt the meta being directed to me at that time. But the metta practice itself in a formal sense, you can only imagine in that kind of pain. And then the distress of the heart, you know, there I'd put aside two months, I had such high expectations the way that you can, I'm sure some of you have fallen into that at times in your practice. And it was just incredibly distressing to the heart. And my mood just really kept falling. And for whatever reason, I decided I was going to muscle through, which was a really bad idea. But that was the idea that I came up with that seemed relevant at the time. And so I just kept going, well, I'm just going to move through all these categories. I mean, clearly what I needed to be doing that month was wishing myself and the body well the entire time. But misguided views are great teachers. And so I'm moving through the categories and it's just getting drier and drier and my mood's getting lower and lower. It's like phone book meta to the nth degree. Finally, I get to all beings and I'm just walking around going, you know, know, may you be protected and safe and all these categories and all this stuff. And I mean, it was just totally discouraging. I finally went back to my room this one day. I'll never forget it. Just curled up on my bed and just cried and cried. I was like, I can't feel anything for all beings, you know. And it wasn't, you know, I'm going to be totally honest about how this story went. It really wasn't until I finished that month of metta and went into the insight meditation month that I got it. And what I got was 
first of all, that I was doing a spiritual bypass. So we haven't talked about this, this retreat, and it's an important part of metta and vipassana practice. My favorite definition of what a spiritual bypass is comes from the psychologist and teacher that coined the term, John Walwood. He says, spiritual bypassing, the tendency to use spiritual ideas to avoid dealing with basic human needs, feelings, and developmental tasks. (laughs) So, we know where that fit in with my story. It's like, here is my knee, and I'm trying to wish well to all beings, you know? I could have said, may all beings with a knee injury, but instead I was going through these really formal categories that had no meaning for me whatsoever at the time. Um, So tools, you know, when we get stuck, when, for whatever reason, when we can't send it to someone or all beings. Uh, The first one was a tool that I really needed at the time that I didn't have. And that was the tool of moving from the foreground to the background with the personal and the universal. Okay, so what I mean by that is, with the example of the knee injury, the personal part of it was the knee was injured. It was painful, you know, my heart was in distress, the knee was in distress, it's very personal. I needed to take that time and not override it and move into some expansive theoretical universal. So we move back and forth, and it's an encouragement that I offer um, when we practice with all beings tomorrow. Uh, You may be expanding it out, and then something gets triggered, and you need to come back home. You're wishing it to all beings who are... um, suffering right now and it sets something off in your heart and it's like opening to that instead of trying to send it out to another you know we're blending and if the intention is to be less separate or non-separate then in the end it actually doesn't matter who we send it to it's the feeling so then it's more like a whiff or or a, a sound that only we can hear that we follow Where's the whiff? Where's it leading us now? That feeling of basic friendliness. Oh, this group. Oh, this place on the planet. Oh, me. Oh, my partner. This weaving of personal and universal. Really important. Uh, Another tool is a tool that I call turn it around. And what it means in this case is that when we notice that the metta has no juice at any point in our practice. It could actually be cause for celebration. I know, that's probably not your first response when the metta has no juice, but it could be cause for celebration. Um, Because if we don't notice that we're stuck, if we don't notice that we're struggling, then we remain stuck. There's no choice point, like Heather was talking about. And for me, when this happens, when I'm sending it to all beings and the juice just disappears, it's like de-juiced the whole thing, what I do automatically is just send metta to everybody who's ever had trouble having a friendly attitude towards somebody, which pretty much covers everybody. You know, just turning it around, turning it around. And of course, that includes me, because that's the piece about compassion to soften the struggle. Everyone who's ever had trouble having a friendly attitude towards somebody. 
I won't ask for a show of hands if there are any exceptions to that in the hall. I know better. Uh, Then we can talk about some of these complementary practices because in truth for myself in metta practice, there have been as many times that I'm actively um, training and playing with more than one Brahma Vihara at one time. A lot of times it's metta compassion or a lot of times it's metta upeka or equanimity or metta mudita joy. So, of course, we already talked the other night quite a bit about compassion. You know, the whole thing gets stuck, bogged down, too he- head, you know, too heady, too vague, too something. It's like, what's happening? We're in pain. Ah, I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. Moving right along. Talk a little bit more about mudita, sympathetic joy, which is a real... Um, Wonderful practice of shifting the center of gravity when things are getting held up in practice. So there's no juice, and we shift the center of gravity. I was thinking about the benefits of using technology in terms of making uh, visceral the experience of all beings, which is just a term. And I was reflecting about YouTube and the benefits of YouTube all beings meta practice. And what I was thinking about was some of these uh, YouTube videos that have been out. Uh, and I actually looked one up just to kind of remind myself of it. So I was trying to remember what my favorite one was. And one of my favorite ones is Playing for Change, Peace Through Music. And it's to the song by Benny King, Stand By Me. Yeah. And people all over the world, like the track is running and then what comes in is, you know, a group of young people in Africa doing their music with this track, you know. Uh, And then a group of people in Eastern Europe and a group of people in South America and, you know, and on and on and on. And the rhythm keeps growing and growing and growing. And the refrain, of course, is, you know, as long as you stand, stand by me, you know, and that's it. That's it. It's like this rhythm and we start to connect, you know, and we can start if to use the image of what we've taken in from our mainstream culture of all beings, not the idea, but like the feeling. If you're music oriented, calling something like that in, you know, if it's more of an image, calling forth the images, if you're more somatically oriented, it's the feeling. And I'll talk more about moving around in the world in a little while and, and how important that is in connecting viscerally with all beings, not the idea, but the experience. So then there's equanimity. And in addition to what we practiced this afternoon with equanimity practice and what Heather shared, definition of equanimity, my favorite working definition of the awakened quality of heart of equanimity is this. Equanimity is the balance of the unruffled mind and heart, grounded in wisdom, which supports a deep caring and an appropriate response. Okay? So say it one more time. Equanimity, the balance of an unruffled heart and mind, grounded in wisdom, 
which supports a deep caring and an appropriate response. And the appropriate response is out of less reactivity or non-reactivity. And one of the traditional metaphors I was thinking about today in terms of the practice that I've been bearing witness to of us as a community is equanimity is like a wise parent raising a child well. And so many of us have been doing that here being that wise parent, bringing forth the wisdom and experience that we have to raise the wholeness of who we are well. You know? And if we can do that, then we can bring that same wise parent energy, whether we're a parent or not, to um, raise our communities well. Yeah. And an image that I want to bring in is a traditional image standing like a tree. So again, another image of the tree. There's the compassion tree with the shade. Everyone is shaded with the shade of compassion. This particular tree is a tree over time. It's a mature tree. It's growing. It's vibrant. It's alive. uh, And it's moving through the seasons. So sometimes it's a cold but warm day like today. The hurricanes can rip through the snow, the sun. Uh, Where I live, there's all these squirrel families that make these homes in the trees. And they run up and down the trees. And there's this whole life going on in the trees. So the trees are home for countless beings. There's all this activity going on. An image of a mature tree of equanimity, that tree can lose a limb in a storm. And it doesn't die. You know, it becomes part of the tree's kind of authenticity. It often becomes an area of strength for the tree if it loses a limb. Leaves come, leaves go. If it's not an evergreen, it's the image of a mature equanimity. You know, it can bear the passage of time and life as it is, the joys, the sorrows. Uh, Gandhi has this quote, Unity to be real must stand the severest strain without breaking. Unity to be real must stand the severest strain without breaking. And I feel like that's connected with the tree in some sense, even though maybe it loses a limb because it doesn't, the spirit of the tree doesn't break due to conditions until the conditions for the tree to die arise, you know, in terms of a metaphor. And I was reflecting on yet another song. It's probably because by the time in my own metta practice, I get to metta for all beings. It's very much about song. Uh, I was raised in spiritual traditions where where music was a very important part of it. Um, I've been well known to go way up on the mountain and just sing my heart out. So if you ever do that, know that you've, you know, been in good company of many of us who have. It's not cheating in your metta practice. Of course, I always have to restrain myself not to do it in the front courtyard. I was thinking about the song from the Civil Rights Movement, really in the face of the winds of government and social oppression, you know, we shall not be moved. And the song goes, like the tree that stands by the water, 
we shall not be moved. It's like that. It's like that. And as I was reflecting on that, then I got an image of a bridge. Um, and I got this image of a, of a stream or a river and how it's always changing. Sometimes it's calm. Sometimes the water's really troubled. You know, it gets really full, gets really not much there in the stream or the river. But the bridge is connected. Whether the water of political conditions, social conditions is troubled, is, you know, just moving in its harmony, is really limited, is really vast. That bridge is connecting. No, I think that's another image for equanimity. And I just thought I would share with you my favorite equanimity phrases. And they're really phrases for a life. They're not traditional at all. And they go like this. I think they really apply to practicing with a difficult person as well. I have my path. You have your path. And I care about you. I have my path. You have your path. And I care about you. So whether we're working with our difficult person, whether we're working with all beings and working with kind of the swings between feeling overwhelmed and numb, you know, oh, bringing in the equanimity. I have my path, you have your path, and I care about you. And when we can really rest in that, then we can find appropriate responses individually and collectively out of that equanimity. A quote from Dr. King, which says, just keep loving them. They can't stand it too long. (laughs) So then there's a question that comes up commonly. What if I forget somebody? Trying to wish well for all beings, but, you know, I forgot this whole group. I forgot someone. I mean, again, if we're leading from looking from the, for the roots of caring, it's like how much caring is fueling that worry? You know, it's quite beautiful. We care so much. We want to include everybody. It's really hard to do that no matter how good our intentions are. What if I forget someone? Really what's happening there is we're confusing the personal for the universal. Because in the greatness of spirit, everybody stands in for everybody. So what I do sometimes at the end of a a period of time of wishing well to all beings, I'll just send metta to all of those that I didn't specifically bring to mind who might need blessings at this moment. Um, Or I'll send metta to all those who are forgotten and unseen on this planet at this time. You know, just really as a way of acknowledging that caring of wanting to include all with intention if not with an image or a phrase or, you know, remembering the whole thing. So then there are the formal techniques for practicing metta for all beings. Talk a little bit about this. One of the main techniques is called radiating. And there's two main types of radiation. This is, right, this is a quote from the, from the commentary metta. When the mind breaks the barriers existing between oneself, 
revered ones, beloved ones, friends, neutral ones, and hostile ones, the meditator now embarks on the great voyage of impersonal radiation. Even as an ocean-worthy ship voyages through the vast and measureless ocean, nonetheless maintaining a route and a goal as well. And this type of radiation is, is called the liberation of mind through universal love. So it's, it's, uh, it's heady stuff if we don't drink it in. So one way that we can radiate is through some traditional groups. I'll post these on the board before tomorrow morning, but just to mention them, so bring in the tradition. If you find that you don't like this, these traditional suggestions, be really glad that you're practicing in 2012 in the United States of America, you know, because we're really expanding and, and, and recreating in the essence of the tradition. And if it inspires you to add this to your creativity, feel free. But here are the groups. Um, may all genders be free from hostility, free from affliction, free from distress. May they live happily. And I, of course, have to acknowledge that I've changed this already. Originally, I didn't say all genders. But the spirit was all genders, and so I used that language. May all awakening ones be free from hostility, free from affliction, from distress, and may they live happily. May all those not yet awakened be free from hostility, free from affliction, free from distress, and may they live happily. May all gods or protectors be free from hostility, free from affliction, free from distress, and may they live happily. May all human beings live happily. May all those in states of suffering live happily. So those are the groups. Then there's directional radiation. So what that means is meta in all directions. Uh, And it gets really complicated because not only is it in all directions, but it's using each one of those seven groups in all directions. North, south, east, west, the four in-betweens, above and below. So in the end, there's 528 modes of radiation which is not meant to intimidate you. It's actually meant to just let you take it lightly and find your own way to radiate well-being. Again, I was talking to Donald over dinner, and he said that when he first did the, the 528 modes of radiation, it took him two full days, all day, to hit all 528. So don't worry about it, but just know it's part of the tradition. Yeah. Again, all four directions above and below. Um, One of the beautiful chants from the tradition that, again, I just sometimes use as inspiration is, uh, you know, I will abide maintaining one quarter of the mind with loving kindness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, 
without hostility and without ill will. You know? So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all is to myself. There it is, directional. (laughs) There it is. Then there's the non-traditional methods. Groups of people on the planet, you know? All those being born right now, and all those dying. All parents, all children, all those advanced in years. All those sleeping right now, all those who are awake right now. Million different versions. It's so creative and it's just calling forth what touches our hearts, how we connect with this basic friendliness. When we work with the directional radiation, it's so much more about the feeling than about figuring out what direction we're using. Again, over dinner, this conversation that Donald and I and some of the staff were having, we were trying to figure out what direction is southeast in this meditation hall. And we all three had different opinions about which direction was southeast, which is such a relief because I've sat in this meditation hall more hours than I can count sending it to the southeast, and it doesn't even matter if I sent it in the right direction. (laughs) It's not about that, you know? It's the feeling. It's the feeling that we had during the equanimity practice this afternoon when Heather invited us to feel ourselves. We can do it right now, just feel ourselves sitting here. And the warmth and the well-being. And then just taking a moment to feel the whole hall, which is radiating out in every direction already. So there's the self, the body, the self. And let's just feel the whole hall for a minute. Ah, already expanding out. Already expanding out. The land, we move to the land. Just take a moment if you think about, oh, if I was going to expand that warmth, some people expand light, sun rays. How would you do that to the whole land here at Spirit Rock? 420 acres. Does the image come to mind? Is there this expansive feeling moving out? Is it light for you? What is it? You know, trust that. Trust that. You know, and then of course all beings really have to expand beyond beyond our human centricness. I was dropping off the, um, the sheets for our small groups practice discussions tomorrow in the council house. And I was walking down the stairs and I heard this rustling in the, in the bushes under the trees. I'm like, what's that sound? And I stopped. There's a whole bird, bird world going on down there. Have you noticed this? There's a whole little community of birds living their life right by the steps underneath these trees. It's so easy to miss, you know? So all of the animals of the sky, underground, of the water, of the land those that uh, we love, those that are endangered. And I think sometimes what really connects us with all beings is when we're outside of our silence. You know, this precious silence that so much growth is possible, but then there's outside of the silence. And I was thinking about the importance of working with ritual 
the archetypal nature of ritual to call in and connect with all beings. And so, of course, the the most uh, beautiful example I know of that and, and somebody that I deeply respect for her work in this area is Joanna Macy. And she has this ritual that she's offered all over the world called the Council of All Beings. And what it is, is a communal ritual in which participants step aside from their human identity and speak on behalf of another life form. So again, this non-separation, not I am different from those birds. It's like, oh, feeling the birdness. A simple structure for spontaneous expression, it aims to heighten awareness of our interdependence in the living body of earth and to strengthen our commitment to defend it. So there's ritual, whether it's going back to the back altar and setting an intention, placing an object, singing in the woods, you know, being in community outside of retreat. The fifth one also expands. It includes the retreat, but it's beyond the retreat, the ways that I think of as non-traditional methods to connect to all beings. And it's actually travel as practice, pilgrimage. And in the end, what makes something a pilgrimage is the intention that the journey is an expression of the spiritual path. So we could actually take a pilgrimage to the grocery store in terms of leading from intention. And so I think about those of us that it was a pilgrimage to come here for the first time to this land. Maybe it's your first time on retreat. Maybe it's just your first time here at Spirit Rock. And of course, there's an exposure to a level of all beings that uh, you wouldn't have had before. When we move outside our comfort zone, in our own cities, uh, in our social groups, and when we move outside of our culture, whether actually traveling or just moving outside of cultural norms, there's an incredible possibility for experiencing friendliness toward a greater circle of representing all and finding out where the exceptions are in our own heart, you know, being able to explore those more deeply. As I was studying this uh, little commentary and traipsing it around northern India in 2010, that became very alive for me. And it actually energized my own practice for all beings, whether I'm away from my home culture or not, at a level I hadn't experienced before, before that time. Just working with this and moving outside my familiar areas, familiar neighborhoods, familiar cultures, and like, yes, and you, and you, and you, and you. And really seeing, really feeling and taking it in. Powerful. So how did the Buddha work with metta for all beings? A great example. Uh, I want to connect some of the basic ways that he exuded metta for all beings with some modern day examples from three different religious backgrounds. Because in the end, you know, this isn't about Buddha Dharma. This is about the awakening human heart and mind. So the first one, 
is uh, that the Buddha handled the impact of politics of family, namely his cousin, Devadatta. Um, They handled the politics of power struggle, of bribery, and injustice with equanimity. And one of the best examples and deepest inspirations in my own life and practice at this time of someone in the Buddhist tradition that also exudes that is Aung San Suu Kyi. Nobel Peace Prize, Burmese um, activist, practitioner, um, um, politician. And, you know, of course, she spent 21 years in uh, overall in and out of house arrest in Burma for her uh, passion for democracy and justice in her country and in her culture. She was separated from her husband, who passed away during her imprisonment. Her children grew up without her. Huge. Yeah. I don't even want to put words to it. I'd rather feel it. Um, But um, this is from a piece of work. And she, of course, was released in November of 2010 and has now been elected as part of parliament and has been able to go receive her Nobel Peace Prize all these years later and is traveling around the world. That's a message for peace and democracy. What is not so well known, this piece says, is that during her long years of confinement, 15 of the past 21, Aung San Suu Kyi relied on meditation to maintain her equanimity. Every morning she practiced vipassana, or insight meditation, concentrating on the rising and falling of her abdomen. Her practice, she has since reported, enabled her to deal with the quote-unquote intense irritation and impatience she felt towards those who had imprisoned her. I mean, that says a lot about her metta right right there. Intense irritation and impatience. Pretty good, you know. (laughs) Um, It also helped her cope with the loss of her husband to prostate cancer and her subsequent estrangement or disconnect from her two sons. She says, After years of meditation, I think you remain very much on an even keel. There is not much difference to you mentally whether you've been released or not. From the... Another aspect that the Buddha exhibited in the fruition of metta is fearlessness in the face of threat. You know, Cra- you know, crazy with rage elephant running at your face and he radiates loving kindness. I'm assuming that would probably not be most of our first responses. You know, probably wisely. Um, but that is the, the full, the Buddha fruition of loving kindness. Uh, don't do this at home, you know. <laughs> In the Christian tradition, I I think a great example of this, of of many on the planet historically, as well as currently, is of course Dr. King. I think about Ananda, who was willing to put his body in front of this raging elephant in order to protect what he loved most and who he believed in, which was his cousin the Buddha. Very much what Dr. King did, over and over and over, put his body on the line for what he loved and believed in. He says, nonviolence is the answer 
to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for humankind to overcome oppression and violence without, resort, without resorting to oppression and violence. Humankind must evolve for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundation of such a method is love. So he put his body on the line and we all know how it ended for his body. And we all know what grew out of that. The third and final aspect I want to speak for a moment about was the quality of the Buddha of the radiation. Uh, The force of the radiation of his love, his metta. And how it was very, very powerful, but also in its more ordinary aspects, he decided to stay in community and nurture a community. Uh, And not just nurture a community, but nurture a community with as much equality as the the cultural and the times in that particular time period could bear. And so from the Hindu tradition, I want to call in Amaji. And Amaji is known to many of us as the hugging guru, the hugging teacher. Uh, you know, grew up in, in the Hindu tradition in India. And um, from her website, actually, it says, Ama inspires, uplifts, and transforms through her embrace, her wisdom, and through her charities, known as embracing the world. So her charity Uh, her kind of umbrella of charities is called Embracing the World. And she's known as the hugging teacher, the hugging guru. And she's actually embraced 32 million people physically hugged. 32 million people. I mean, moments like that, my mind just stops. The conceptual theoretical mind just, it gaps and in that space, we might feel the love and the, the non-separation that allows something like that to manifest. She has embraced and comforted more than 32 million people. When she is asked where she gets the energy to help and embrace so many people, Amma says this, where there is true love, Everything is effortless. She says, a continuous stream of love flows from me to all of creation. This is my inborn nature. This is the invitation of metta for all beings. This is not her personal inborn nature. This is our inborn nature. So in closing, a couple of quotes. The first from the commentary Metta by Venerable Buddha Every time one practices Metta, for however short a period, one enjoys a measure of freedom of mind. 
and by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. So drinking in the potential for this basic friendliness to be vast, to be as big as it wants to be. And that's our inborn potential, not somebody else's, ours. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.